Broadcasting live to the world now, it's Sheila Zielinski. Sheila Zielinski Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now, here is your host, end-time watchwoman, Sheila Zielinski. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Sheila Zielinski Show for this October 8th, 2015 edition Thank you so much for joining me today. I broadcast Monday to Friday. That's weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and Saturdays at 11 p.m. Eastern on WINB and WWCR. The information is at weekendvigilante.com. And there is a call-in number for the Saturday Night Show. If you go to Radio Archives tab on my website, you'll find that information there. I want to let people know that I am launching Remnant Roundup in January. This is a project that is very near and dear to my heart. So if you would like to be a representative for your state or province, do email me. I think this is going to be a wonderful tool to connect people in their areas, especially because who knows how long we have left of the internet before they flip a kill switch on it. It is very nice to connect people boots on the ground. If you have not read my book, Green Gospel, The New World Religion, please do get a copy of it today by going to greengospel.ca. And I do like what Dr. Tim Ball said. Sheila Zielinski in her book effectively demolishes most of what you think you know. There's a lot of research that went into the book and you will be shocked. I guarantee it does come in an ebook format for those who prefer that format And do check out what other people are saying about the book at Amazon.com. Tickets are selling fast for Hear the Watchmen, so do get your tickets for that. I'm going to be speaking at that. David Langford is going to be there. Paul McGuire, Nathan Leal, Coach Dave Daubemeyer, the Hagmans will be there, many others. It's going to be a fantastic event, and you are going to want to get out to that. So do make that a priority. I get a lot of people asking me if I can recommend a Bible and recommend a good devotional? And my answer is yes. The Bible that I use is the Companion Bible. I have the large print edition, and you can just go to Amazon and find it on there. Again, Companion Bible. It's the authorized 1611 version, and I'm going to tell you, amazing. And Pastor David Langford uses it as well. So, And I use the Smith Wigglesworth Devotional. It's a 365-day devotional. It's by Whitaker House. It's a fantastic devotional. So that would be my answer to that. Folks, we have a fantastic guest today. I have the one and only, the author of Technocracy Rising, the Trojan Horse of Globalism. It is my pleasure to have him back to the program today. It's always an amazing discussion. Brilliant man. Patrick Wood, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome back. Hi, Sheila. Thanks for having me back. Patrick, several listeners recently emailed me screenshots of the fact that our books 
are frequently purchased together as a set. And that's really not surprising considering the topics that we tackle. A lot in my book is covered depopulation is talked about sort of like an eclectic mishmash of eugenics, Fabian socialism, humanism, the green agenda. Now, I really noticed some strong overtones of that in your book as well, because think about Aldous Huxley, his student was Orwell. And I can't, you know, help but think about our book sort of being a brave new world meets 1984. You've got British eugenics going forward. And if you go backwards, you've got Darwin's bulldog Thomas Huxley. And I can't help but notice the parallels between 1932 Brave New World, these scientists seeking to control the population. And of course, if you go forward with good old brother Julian Huxley, you've got UNESCO. He was a co-author of the Humanist Manifesto. I mean, this really is one big mishmash, isn't it? It really is. And the only uh, difference between uh, how you arrived at your book and how I arrived at my book is just where we came from. We're coming from. We came from different disciplines. I, you know, my my life experience has been from a financial slash economic perspective, and so I have that. You know, I have that history. I've watched these these economic issues for almost forty years now, and I understand how you know groups like the Trilateral Commission have have manipulated the economic system to bring about this transformation. Along the way, I discovered. That the movement, the technocracy movement, and even the movement within just the, the the mainline mainline global elite is intensely religious. There's just an unmistakable religious fervor. Yes, and you picked up on that. And you know this is so we're we're, we're dovetailing together. You know, here 40 years later, well, you're not you're not my age, but you understand what I'm saying. We're dovetailing together now with a common story that actually it reinforces the veracity of each one of us at this point because we've come to the same conclusion coming from different angles. Well, you know, one of the things I do talk about in Green Gospel and really environmentalism has become a religion for people. And that is really quite frightening in itself, isn't it? It is. And there's different flavors of this religion, too. You see, well, it's not like the Catholic Church, for instance, where there's a kind of a unified doctrine that everybody has to believe. Right. You've got different types of religious expression in this. You have, um, on one hand, um, you have the mainline religions uh, that have gone green. And uh, I, I got a great quote from the World Council of Churches. Um, here's the quote. This was last year after the Interfaith Summit on Climate Change. I, I didn't know this at the time. I got this after the fact. But the World Council of Churches issued a press release after this Interfaith Summit, and they said, quote, there's never been such a large amount of religious environmental activity in one location in the history of the world. This week will mark a watershed in the history of religion. It will be the time that people remember as the time when the world's faiths declared themselves irrevocably as green faiths, close quote. That's an incredible statement. The religions of the world have gone green. This also includes Islam, by the way. They don't mention Islam here. But uh, Islam has a flavor to it that is distinctly green. Uh, 
and they're following along with the same thing too. But then on the other side, other side, you have new age religions that are new age, uh, I don't know, thinking, whatever, that's following after this as well, the Eastern mysticism type of stuff. You have the pantheist movement following after this stuff. And, you know, when, when you add it all up, it's basically the only, the only group that has kind of resisted jumping into this green faith business uh, are, are kind of a, a certain subset of the evangelical church that has just said, we're going to, we're just going to kind of take the Bible and just the Bible, <laughs> nothing else. And we're going to resist all of this other, other thinking, other kinds of thinking. And so uh, even within the evangelical church, there is great pressure to kind of go along with all this green stuff. I mean, it's in education, it's in, uh, you know, just in society, it's in your local community, people are talking about it all the time. There's tremendous peer pressure for people to accept this stuff. And they are, fortunately. Absolutely. Well, you know, one of the things you and I talked about before, now I cover something extensively that is quite frightening, and it's the Evangelical Climate Initiative, ECI. People can look that up. And it's really a bunch of U.S. church leaders and organizations that came together. And, and look at old, good old Rick Warren, Council of Foreign Relations member slash I love Chrislam, you know, the Saddleback megachurch huckster. He's really pushing this merging of Christianity and Islam. And yet, you know, other people are pushing a mishmash of Buddhism and Catholicism or Buddhism and Islam. There's really this unification thread running rampant, isn't it? There really is. And you wouldn't think that these disparate religions would have anything to get along on, you know, like 20 years ago. Yeah, man, that's oil and water. They never have anything to talk about. But now they do, and now they are. And, you know, you have, uh, they say that politics makes strange bedfellows. Well, religion makes even stranger bedfellows <laughs> politics. By my friend uh, Carl Tyker, who I think you know who he is. If yes, I'm a big fan of Carl's. Yeah, Carl went to the Mormon Transhuman Association meeting, went, went twice, actually. Oh, the first boy. one was held in Salt Lake City, and then the second was in New York. <clears throat> and he was uh, he actually just got to go as an attendee. Uh, they didn't turn him away um, because he you know had a, a came with a Christian perspective. But you know here you have the Mormon Transhuman Association meeting, and you just you, you can't process that. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. No. <laughs> but there was Buddhists there. There was there was Sikhs. There was uh, you know various uh, various types of. Uh, of Eastern mystic religions and stuff that were there. And it's like, and there were some Christian religions face represented as well. And Carl was there and just observed. And he said, you just can't, you cannot believe that these people have found a common thread. Now this was on, they were talking about transhumanism in particular, but as you know, transhumanism and technocracy are very closely related. Yes. Because they're both essentially based on scientism. And, uh, so anyway, they're, they're meeting, they're just having a great time of fellowship and they're all talking about, uh, you know, how you're going to use science to achieve immortality and, and we're all going to, you know, live forever. And it's like, oh my gosh. Okay. You know what it's like? It reminds me of when I think of Maury Strong back at the 92 Earth Summit, he was actually 
quoting, get this, he was quoting from the great invocation about Lucifer in the plan. And if people look that up, it's part of the creed of the great invocation based in theosophy. And people know theosophy is a blend of Eastern and Western religion. It's very closely aligned with Vedic Hinduism. And if you look at good old Alice Bailey, she was a hardcore Luciferian. The one, you know, Lucius Trust, Alice Bailey, the New Age pagan head of the UN. I mean, it's really interesting that you springboard ahead in 2015. And some of this invocation and this theosophy and Vedic Hinduism is wrapped in some of the green literature that they're sending out to these churches. And these churches have these pagan Bailey Blavatsky theosophical symbols. I mean, this is a nightmare. It is. It's a global deception or a global delusion the likes of which we've never seen since the Tower of Babel. The only difference at the Tower of Babel was that, well, the world wasn't very big back then. You know, uh, those were the people that were there. They populated, they all spoke the same language, and they all lived in the same town, so to speak. And, uh, you know, God took exception with them building the tower and came down and scattered their languages, and people split to the four winds of the earth. And we've never really seen a global delusion since that time. There's been... Uh, continental delusions, there's been country delusions, there's been cults. You know, I was just reminded of Jim Jones the other day and the crazy cult right. where people drank his Kool-Aid. But, you know, we, we've had all of this stuff over the millennium, but this is the first time where there's been a complete global delusion going on here with this, based on this green faith business. Yeah, People going nuts over it everywhere, every country, every language every little burg and village and city and town everywhere in the world is steeped in this stuff today, thanks to the United Nations and all the NGOs that are taking it everywhere they go. And they intend to transform the world. This is what this is the language that the United Nations uses. They're going to trans. They call it deep transformation. This is not just some kind of superficial makeover. Right. But a deep transformation would be more likely, you know, if you were to announce the world that you're going to undergo a sex change operation and you're not going to be. You decide, I don't want to be a woman anymore. I want to be a man. That would be deep transformation. And that's what's happening to the world today. There is. This is not just a a changing of a few things in the world. This is a complete renovation of the world system. And it's an economic coup first. Political, there's a political aspect to it second, but this is an economic coup that's taking place globally because the, the very phrase sustainable development is an economic phrase. It, development, business, it's, uh, it's what, what companies and what societies do uh, how, is how people work, is how people, you know, uh, support an, an economic system. They're intending to change this. This is what Christiana Figueres did earlier this year right. at a press conference in Europe when she said capitalism is out, sustainable development is in. That's right. We have, she said, we have a defined period of time to change the economic, the prevailing economic development model that's been reigning for the last 150 years since the Industrial Revolution. So they're making no bones about it. They're, they're saying, no, we're going to get rid of capitalism and free enterprise. We're going to kill it dead once and for all. And we're going to implement this new economic system that they promise has wonderful utopian-like benefits, like 
poverty is going to be eradicated. It's so interesting that Bailey, I mean, you know, the whole Lucifer Trust dealio, the interesting thing, and now just remember, folks, that Lucius Trust office in New York was located at 666 United Nations Plaza, just a side note there, but they had an economic council, Patrick, and as you were talking, it reminds me of under this really slick program the UN had, it was called World Goodwill, and it was calling for education, and this is total re-education, a new age world citizenship was put on the table back then. And part of it was an economic and social system to enlighten the masses. And they wanted a global world federation or actually a one world authority. And it was interesting because this very exact verbatim statement, Patrick, was echoed in the Pope's encyclical word for word right out of that very slick World Goodwill program a long time ago was verbatim in the Pope's encyclical. And it was calling for one world global climate authority. Isn't that stunning? Because after all, we, you know, we have to globally get our act together and we got to stop runaway global warming and, you know, fossil fuel is out of control and this climate disruption, climate change. I used to just call it weather, Patrick, but, you know, it's it's amazing, isn't it? It is. It, it absolutely is. And, you know, we just, it's just every everywhere we look on the global scene, all these NGOs, all these different governmental bodies that are talking about, they're all spouting the same line now. They're all talking about exactly the same stuff. And you see these phrases, these same phrases come up over and over and over again. And you have to ask, well, okay, that means there must be a common source. In other words, um, people just don't spontaneously come up with this kind of talk around That's the right. world. There must be some common source that's feeding them. Uh, this these thoughts and uh, if there of course if there isn't a human trail if you can't find a human trail of seed planting if you will uh, and in most cases we can't you have to conclude after that if, the, if you can't determine that there's a human uh, a human connection you have to determine that there definitely is a spiritual connection that uh, if it's not a human a human seeding of ideas there is a spiritual seeding of ideas where people are getting implanted with these thoughts, you know, all over the world. And all of a sudden they start to grow and you look at the crops that are, you know, you look at the harvest now and say, wow, how'd that happen? You know, just, all these people are talking the same thing and they're coming together. Well, it just, it just proves that there is a, there is a spiritual dimension to this. And it's pretty ugly when you look at it. <laughs> well, way. it's pretty frightening because, you know, when you think of a rise of whatever it is, rise of fascism, the rise of a replacement economic system is really quite frightening too. And then to think it'll sweep across the entire world because you mentioned these phrases they throw out. Global transformation really is a buzzword now, isn't it, Patrick? It is. And this you hear this over and over and over again at the United Nations. They're the ones that are really promoting this idea. Um, that's not the only you know, catchphrase we see, but it is a very important one. And people routinely let it slip. They give, they give it a free pass. I don't know how they've done this one, but everybody gives it a free pass. Well, that sounds good to me. Well, no, wait a minute. I, I'm curious. What will the transformation entail? And what is the outcome? What, what's it going to look like when we get there? Those are the questions I want to see answered. And they don't answer them anywhere. They just don't. They, they talk about taking over the means of consumption and production, which is economic terms, of course. Well, if you're going to create sustainable patterns of production and consumption, who's going to decide what 
is acceptable or what is sustainable for production? What, in other words, what can be made? Who's going to decide what's acceptable for sustainable consumption, which is what you and I will actually consume in our life, whether it be medical care or, or the water that comes to our house, utilities, electricity, energy, the cars we drive, the, the places we travel, the people we know, the ideas we have. What does this mean? And people are being very foolish to just ignore these questions. It's like, well, if somebody's going to do it. I guess they're going to do a good job. After all, these are people who have PhDs and went to Columbia and Wharton and, you know, all these great schools, Yale. <laughs> yeah, well, I know a jihadist in the slaughterhouse that went to Occidental College and his professor was Zbigniew Brzezinski. So what I love about your book, Patrick, is you really connect the dots of modern globalism really in a way that I've never seen anybody cover before. I mean, yeah, we've all read the 1984 and we've read The Brave New World. And this really is an eclectic coalescence of all of it. And you really put it in a way that a person doesn't connect those dots until you start laying out this globalization plan and its perpetrators and what their intentions are for the future, because they really do have an end game, don't they? They really do. And, I, you know, I want to say, just, just a side point in this, when I was writing with Anthony Sutton years ago in, this, in the late 70s, he taught me so much that I didn't realize at the time, but I do realize it now. One of the things, one of the main things that he taught me was how to study patterns, how to look for patterns and things. And he said, uh, and then he, here's a guy who had had already a 30-year career, just an impeccable, brilliant career in uh, studying East-West relations between the, you know, the, the, the Eastern, the Soviets, uh, and the Western world. And he already knew that the majority of his work had been determined based on patterns. It's like solving a crime, even. You know, like we hear these detective shows on you know, looking for the serial killer, right? What do they look for? They look for patterns. And you, you find out who the perp is by often by examining the patterns in the crime, and then it becomes clear what's going on. Well, we use, he taught me to use the same thinking in analyzing globalism and globalization, what these people are trying to do. And back then it was a trilateral commission, and they're still in play today, by the way. But recognizing the patterns of how these things work is the key because every time, once a pattern is determined, Let's say, let's say when, if I have a pattern that I can write down and quantify, say it has something to do with smart grid, that's smart meters and stuff on your house. If I can put a fingerprint on a pattern over there and I see I'm looking at something else, I'll let another area, let's say I'm studying common core. And all of a sudden I see that pattern in common core. Okay. I see that whatever my pattern is, I'm not going to say what it is, whatever it is. I see that pattern emerge in common core. There's a light bulb goes off in my head. The pattern is like a fingerprint. It's like bioidentification. You see the same MO, you got a good clue, folks. It's the same people doing it to you. That's how I came up with the majority of my book, Technocracy Rising. I've been studying these patterns for almost 40 years. And I see how these people work. I see their modus operandi. And I study it that way. And after I'm done looking at the patterns, I don't just present the pattern. Then once you see who's done it, then you can start digging in closer to actually find the smoking guns, if you will. You know, here's the thing. There's nothing new under the sun. Obviously, the devil has the same playbook. It goes back to the garden when he right. deceived Adam and Eve. I mean, it's the same playbook, just a different form of 
deception. Now, you mentioned Anthony C. Sutton. I have every one of his books. I especially loved his Order of the Skull and Bones. I can't tell you, Patrick, what an influence he had on myself. You really can see very similar overtones in your work and Sutton's. And I like that. Your writing style, like the clarity of it and all your extensive footnotes and your extensive bibliography. I know the challenges of writing a book. And I mean, I don't know if you found this, but there's actually a, a moment when you are writing your book and all of a sudden you go, oh, dear God, what? This can't be happening. You know, you're kind of almost a little bit disconnected with it until you realize what you're writing. And it's just, there's a moment in time where you go, oh, my, this can't be happening. You know, did you ever have those moments? I totally did. Um, <laughs> more than <laughs> once, I have to say, get I call them uh, gospel bumps. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not goosebumps, but gospel bumps. And you, you you write something and then you go back tomorrow and look at it. And it's like, oh, my gosh, did I write that? <laughs> and it just, you know, you, it, it hits you from a different perspective. Like, you know, you're reconnecting with it, even though your mind might have kind of been on autopilot for a while. Right. You know, you're, trying to, you're just trying to pump out words and make paragraphs and, you know, get a chapter together and done. And you're forcing yourself. And sometimes you have to. Sometimes it's like, like in a, you know, in a football game after you get clobbered three or four times in a row and you still get up there and go back out, you know, cause you know, you got to finish the game. Uh, you know, that's the way it is with writing. It was with me. There were times when I just sweated bullets over some, you know, trying to get something out. I, I didn't want to do the research. I couldn't connect it together. Right. And finally you just kind of come to a point where it's fisher cut bait You say, okay, I don't care what's happening today. Don't I'm shutting my door. Don't bother me. I'm unplugging the phone and I'm not coming out of this room until I'm done with this chapter. Yeah, absolutely. And that's how most chapters got done, by the way. It's like when I finally got so frustrated with everything and my procrastination and, and, um, I'll tell you quite really, honestly, I didn't want to write this book. I just, I didn't need to write another book. I'm not that that's not where my ego is at. Right. And you know, it's like, I knew I had to, I, and I, I knew that from even from a spiritual perspective, I had to do it. But um, I procrastinated, I bet, probably 90% of the time that, you know, across a two-year period where I just didn't want to go in and even crack it open, you know, just whatever. See, for me personally, I, there was nothing out there that was covering the green agenda the way I knew. I mean, people were talking about Agenda 21 and sustainable development and the smart growth, smart grid, but nobody was actually getting into the spiritual piece of this. What is this Gaia worship? What is this pantheism? What's that all about? Nobody was really, they were talking about doctored computer models and the science being wrong in the global warming mantra, but nobody was connecting the global government piece, the one world government, the, you know, taking the very air we breathe, Patrick, demonizing CO2 into this deadly pollutant, because it's not a God given necessary byproduct for life, of course. So I nobody know. was really covering that. So did you at some point in your book feel like, well, it's got to get written because no one else is covering this? That was really the whole basis of the book in the first place. It, it weighed on me. When Tony died in 2002, uh, all of his research was lost, 100% of it. Oh, no. That put pressure on me. It took about five years for it really to weigh in, but it put pressure on me because I knew I had duplicate research, at least on this topic. And I didn't want to face it for a long time. 
and uh, you know really deal with it. But then I thought, okay, well, I need to start writing again. I you know start doing more research and stuff, and I did, and I got back into it about ten years ago. And when I finally discovered technocracy and had spoken about it quite a bit on the on the air and in, you know, I knew that a book had to be written about this because it was the most important story in the history of the world. And nobody was seeing what was going on. People were just missing it. And this was after, you know, if, if Tony and I were to stand up on a, on a stage today, if he were alive, the one thing we could say to people today, I, I don't know that we'd want to say it just from an egocentric point of view, but we would tell people together, hand in hand, look us in the eye, folks, we told you so. Yeah. 40 years ago, we told you so. And nobody listened. They went dancing on down the hill and they didn't listen to what we were saying these people were intending to do, what they've done already and what they're intending to do in the future. Nobody listened. And so I had that baggage with me, see, after Tony died, right? And you can see where there's a conflict here. It's like, why should I raise a finger to help people that wouldn't listen anyway, <laughs> you know, before? <laughs> Why should I do it now? Well, I had a few long talks with the Lord, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, but Anthony was covering stuff. I mean, he was doing stuff when nobody knew about it. I mean, he was conspiracy theory when nobody even knew what the word meant, right? Yes, but with Tony, it was never a theory. He was, yes. he, he was at Hoover. He was yes. at Hoover Institution for War, Peace, and Revolution at Stanford, and he wrote most of his early work, all of his early works are really... Uh, they affectionately called him, jokingly, his colleagues called him the Hoover vacuum cleaner. Now, that's, that's, that, was, that was his reputation because he's like a bloodhound. When he, got a, when he got a smell of something, man, you couldn't stop him. He'd start baying and off he'd go. He'd be traveling over here and taking trips overseas and whatever. So where the heck is Sutton? Oh, he's on a hunt. <laughs> he's out there doing something. We don't know what he's doing, but he's the out there. The Sherlock Holmes of the globalists. <laughs> I know. He's a Sherlock Holmes of globalization. And he'd come back with a, you know, a box full of stuff and he'd bring it back and lay it all out. He'd start writing, uh, you know, writing these, these detailed books and stuff using all original research, just incredible stuff. But that was his reputation as just being like a, like a vacuum. Cleaner. He never really had anything, uh, anything to do, especially in his early days, with with conspiracy. Everything was backed up with rock solid research. That's what got him kicked out of Hoover, by the way, originally because he started looking at this Trilateral Commission while he was still at Hoover, and just so happened that David Packard was president of Stanford at the time, and he was the founder of Hewlett Packard and one of the original members of the Trilateral Commission. And he, they basically said, "Nope, we're not going to have, we cannot let Sutton get loose on this." Uh uh not not the Hoover vacuum cleaner. <laughs> well, you know, it's so interesting. You know, you just mentioned the Trilateral Commission. Do you find it fascinating that, you know, you see this radical movement lost momentum about by 1940s? And then, of course, it regained status around 73 when the good old, you know, Marxist conjoined twins there, Brzezinski and Rockefeller, they sort of really re-sparked that new international economic order, didn't they? Well, Rockefeller wanted to do this all along. They, you know, his his dad said that competition was a sin, and the Rockefeller crowd, uh, not just exclusively him, but he's a figurehead. He's an easy one to point to. He's, he's the purest of the bunch. Uh, they have long wanted to create a global system that would favor them, that they would be able to to dominate and be in control of. And this goes back a long, long ways. I mean, we're, we're talking, we could, you could go back and trace this back probably five, 600 years easily. 
But starting in the early 1900s, we see this thread magnifying, magnifying, and magnifying. We saw several attempts to literally take over the United States just summarily along the way. They failed, fortunately. The conspiracies were discovered, and and uh, they, uh, you know, were put the kibosh on them. But Richard Gardner wrote a very important paper in 1974. He was one of the original members of the Trilateral Commission. And he wrote a paper for the Council on Foreign Relations publication, uh, Foreign Affairs. It was called The Hard Road to World Order. Right. And in that article, he complained that the frontal approach had never achieved anything in the past for them, you know, for this crowd. And he never really identified what the frontal approaches were. But if you know your, your U.S. history, you can go back for 100 years and you can find some of those frontal approaches. They all failed for one reason or another. And so he said, what's needed is an end run uh, around national sovereignty, and we need to do it. We need to do it from the back door rather than from the front door. And that was the that was the heartbeat of the Trilateral Commission. They they basically concluded we're going to have a new action plan here, guys, and it's not going to be a frontal approach. It's going to be a backdoor approach. It's going to be an end run around uh, the people that would block us. And so the first thing they did as they set out to do this is they, uh, they put a hammerlock on the executive branch of the United States government when Jimmy Carter was elected with uh, Walter right. Mondale. Both yeah. of them were members of the Trilateral Commission. And they swept almost one-third of the U.S. contingent of the Trilateral Commission into office, uh, completely dominated the Carter administration. Every agency was completely dominated by these people. And <clears throat> they, they were after the mechanism not to not to have a takeover of our political system which it looked like that to a lot of people but the idea of um of getting control of executive branch of our country was to, we were the greatest nation on the planet with regards to economic policy we were the driver we were the movers and shakers and so what better branch of government to get a hold of than ours and so over the years, we're not surprised looking back now from a 40, 40 years later, we're not surprised. We look backwards and we see that it was Jimmy Carter that started the position of the U.S. trade representative um, that the president appoints, of course, is his, his U.S. trade representative. Um, these are the people that negotiate all the trade agreements that we've seen that have been so disastrous over the years, like NAFTA and CAFTA. Now the Trans-Pacific Partnership is coming and the Transatlantic Partnership is coming. Um, out of the 12 USTRs that have been appointed since 1977, nine of them have been members of the Trilateral Commission. That's right. Nine out of 12. Yeah. Well, okay, guys, get a clue. This is it. This is the pattern. This is the history. It's an economic coup. They've taken control of the economic mechanism of the world, and they've done it in part through controlling the United States government to get there. It was just a means to an end. It was not the end in itself as most people thought. It was merely a means to an end. And so here we are today, you know, we're looking at this stuff, we see we see their complete domination over the last 40 years, and they're the ones that have put the United Nations up to promoting sustainable development, climate change, green economy, all the things surrounding it. These are the people that have done it exclusively. I, say, I have to say their fingerprint is on every aspect of the things you and I are talking about here. You've raised so many good points there. 
Are you surprised, speaking of the United Nations, that Obama's just now announced a global police force to fight extremism in the U.S.? I mean, this can't be good, can it? No, it can't be. And there is no, there's no extremism in the U.S. Other than extremism, he's allowed to come through our southern border and in through immigration programs in places like Syria. This is absolutely insanity. Uh, but then this is the same guy that's politicized and radicalized our police forces and, and militarized them all across the country. You know, I there was well, never... it amounts to nothing. Let's face it. You know, because when Loretta Lynch was announcing, well, you know, my office is going to be working in several American cities to form the Strong Cities Network. It's going to be a massive law enforcement initiative that will encompass the globe. But it really amounts to nothing, Patrick, less than overriding American law. We're talking about in favor of United Nations laws that would not only be implemented without any consultation of Congress at all, but it's like a Sharia-compliant world body. This is Look what's going on in Syria. I mean, does this surprise you what is going on with all this Islamic law? No, it's it's the same continuing mindset in a way that <clears throat> that it's okay for for a small group of people to make the rules up for the for the vast majority of people. And whether it's um whether it's the United Nations making rules, whether it's the e, the EU, the European Union, uh, European Commission making rules for all the European community or you know, any other group, whether it's, uh, you know, Islam making rules for people based on Sharia, it's all the same stuff. It, it's, it's the same pattern. A small elite make the rules out for everybody else. If the heart of man were not so stinking dark, I probably wouldn't have a problem with it. But, you know, until, until the Lord comes, the, the righteous one who doesn't have an evil heart, uh, anytime men stand up and say, we will tell you what to do. You better look out because there's nothing but darkness that's going to come out of it from their mouth and to your life. It will bring pain, misery, and suffering. And that's been the history of the world. That's, and that's, what's got, that's what we're facing right now is a scientific dictatorship. Well, it really is a scientific dictatorship. And we mentioned endgame a little while ago. Patrick, what is really the endgame here? Capture of resources. This is, an, again, it's an economic issue. Historically, and I know you, you, you'll think of some Old Testament passages, like with Job, for instance. You'll think, you, you'll remember quickly that wealth has always been determined based on resources, not money, not just cash, but on resources. How many, how many cattle do you have you know, on, your, on your ranch? How many acres do you have? Uh, how many camels do you have? I'm, talk, I'm thinking about the story of Job right now, right? How many herds of this and that do you have? How many employees do you have working the land, farming, producing goods and foods? Do you do you mine gold? Do you uh, do you bring oil out of the ground or other resources that are necessary? Resources have always been the measure of wealth. Money is not the measure measure of wealth. When you take a billionaire today, some of these these wannabe kitty million billionaires, you know, uh, with with startup tech companies, you get a, a guy all of a sudden, he's got a uh, billion dollars in stock, maybe, maybe he's got some cash in the bank. Is he wealthy? No, he's not wealthy. He, he merely has a lot of dollars, but he's not wealthy. And as you know, if the market crashes tomorrow, he could lose 100% of everything he has. So wealth is supposed to last, right? Wealth just doesn't go poof, and it's gone. But historically, Wealth has been measured in terms of the resources you own or control. 
And this is what the global elite is after. They're trying to get the resources of the world into something comparable to a global trust that would be managed by a few number of trustees for the global common good. That's why there's no property rights specified by this whole system. Agenda 21 is completely against property rights of any kind. They want everything to be owned by these ruling authorities. The technocrats. The, the technocrats, that's exactly. And so the Rockefeller crowd got, got wind. I mean, they, when they saw the vision of what Brzezinski wrote about in 1970 with his book Between Two Ages, when he got the vision, I expect he was overjoyed. Because they knew about resources for a long time. That's why they were big on oil. They had most of the, a lot of the oil fortune was in the Rockefeller family. And so they understood resources just fine. They also understood banking and finance. But they knew that the wealth ultimately was not in banking and finance. It's in the resources. So all around the world, including in our country, but all around the world, there's a, a press going on to convert national resources into the United Nations, into this global trust. That's why you see the BLM the Bureau of Land Management in our country and, and the Park Service Department are going out and gobbling up millions of acres of land in America, either converting them to direct ownership by the BLM or converting them into United Nations heritage sites. Yeah, and if you don't comply with them, they'll have sniper rifles pointed on you like Cliven Bundy can tell us about That's the exactly right. last rancher standing there in Nevada. You know, and it's not even clandestine anymore, Patrick. The reality no. is the green tsunami of globalism, it's operating completely in the open. They've got their global agenda, and it's coming soon, folks, to a community near you. I mean, look at it already calls for dramatically increasing urbanization and forcing populations out of the rural areas into these, you alluded to it, densely populated, massive mega cities, complete with these stack and pack micro apartments controlled by these technocrats. And they have the ability, Patrick, to control every aspect of one's life. And when completed, Aldous Huxley can make them love their servitude. I mean, that that's what I call hell on earth. Yet, it's kind of like this acclimation to it. It's like the frog in the boiling water. People just kind of shrug their shoulders. It's like the Pied Piper syndrome. You know, they're just marching along, singing Kumbaya while Rome burns around us. This reminds me of what must have happened in the Nazi Germany when people go, how did this happen? Well, we're watching that happen again right here in the United States of America. Right. It's fortunate for us in a way that we don't, we don't have to achieve a majority of our people to kick back against this. Most revolutions only require 2 to 3% of the populace to be involved. So you and I don't have the mission of getting 100% of the people. But I will, I will say this. Sutton used to say, and we, we both said it, he, he, but I think he came up with a phrase perhaps. Uh, this, is a, this is not biblical doctrine by a long shot, but it's rather facetious to, to say the least. But we used to say that 2% of the people think 8% think they think, and 90% would rather die than think. Wow. And that was really true. And it's really true today. There's a certain, maybe a certain 2% that really understand and that are kind of clued in where it is. 8% are the, the, the kind of the wannabes, the hangers on. I think, well, we, you know, we really know what's going on, but they don't, they really don't. They don't, they don't have a clue. And the other 90% could give a care, completely oblivious to it. They don't want to think. They'd rather die than think. Well, I would say, think, it's not illegal yet. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's the deal. And I do believe that if Americans understood who the enemy really was, that they might have a chance of doing something about it. But 
I, I'll tell you, for 40 years, I've been involved in one aspect or another of fighting communism and socialism and fascism and all those isms, Marxism, etc. And we're measurably worse off today than we were 40 years ago. And I've seen thousands of people like me along the way that have put their life into this stuff, you know, to try and push America back towards center. And we're worse off today than we've ever been. What that tells me is that we have not yet seen who the enemy really is. We haven't seen who the enemy really is. And the day that America does perceive that there is an enemy, then we might have some chance at actually going after and destroying this enemy. But in the meantime, we're just basically boxing at shadows. And that's what, that's what you see people doing, boxing at shadows. You know, you talk about the national political scene. Oh, is it going to be Trump or is it going to be uh, Jeb Bush? Well, I, I don't like Jeb Bush, you know. And all this dialogue goes on as if it's going to make any difference to anything. And they miss the whole picture. They just completely miss it. Jeb Bush is not the enemy. Neither is Trump. Neither is Barack Obama. It's the people behind them that are pulling the strings. It was John Podesta, by the way, a member of the Trilateral Commission, that gave Barack Obama his entire climate change policies that he's working out on us right now. That's right. Exclusively John Podesta, who cooked this scheme up that Obama is using as his own. You know, he, he likes his, he's got his ego in there. Oh, I'm so bright. I'm so smart. I thought this up. No, he didn't. Even the New York Times said that it was John Podesta who single-handedly gave him this, this policy on climate change. And so every time you turn around, you see these handlers coming and going. Susan Rice, NSA right now, National Security Advisor. It's the most important position, second to, I don't know who, second to the president. Yeah. You can't get to the president except you go through the NSA. Susan Rice is a member of the Trilateral Commission. What? In fact, since he's been in presidency, all three of his NSAs have been members of the Trilateral Commission. All three of them. And Susan Rice is the latest one. It's not Obama. Obama's an empty suit. He's a figurehead. He's yeah, a they're, on the string. they're really absolutely just the same puppets working for the same puppet yeah. masters. I mean, let's face it. Everybody listening is they've seen the documentaries about Hitler's Germany, Stalin's USSR, Mao's China, regimes that killed millions of people. But, you know, we're seeing the full level of control here, you know, not through necessarily marching soldiers, but really great leaders. I mean, forget concentration camps. I mean, we're really looking at a whole new level of we're morphing into the Fourth Reich, aren't we? Well, we are. And historically, there's a very ugly uh, non-precedent, well, non-precedent, whatever. There's, there's a very ugly fact in my mind that every continent on the face of the earth has had a major genocide in the last 150 years of one kind or another. Uh, whether it was in Soviet Russia, whether it was in China, whether it was in Cambodia, there have been several in Africa, actually. And you've got in the Mideast, uh, several Holocausts that have happened there over time. Of course, Germany. America is the only continent, of, is the only major country of population, where there's significant population that has not experienced a government-led genocide in history. You understand what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't, like, I don't like that because it seems like we're kind of winding the clock, if you will, for that kind of thing to happen in our country one day. Technocracy really is complete totalitarianism, isn't it? It is complete totalitarianism. It's, it's much worse than communism much worse than socialism. I would take communism any day over technocracy. 
if I had a choice, I would take communism first. Well, when you look at fascism, you know, even Benito Mussolini's contemporary European fascism, it's always plagued by the deterministic idea about the struggle between the classes like the case of communism and national socialism. But this is really a, a coalescence, a culmination, a convergence of all this, isn't it? It is. It is. And if we only had a person to look at as a dictator, that would be one thing. But to technocrats, it's the system that is the dictator. The system. The system is composed these days of computer algorithms and rules that are given to it to force people into a certain mode of action. These policies are written by the technocrats and embedded into the system and, and into the software. And when a system controls you instead of people, there's absolutely no mercy. There's no chance for mercy at all, ever. It's completely unaccountable. You can't. You don't even know who who wrote these stupid programs, much less get your hands on them. And it can get increasingly worse just depending on the whims of the people making the decisions. You know, for to set the policies. A scientific dictatorship is all encompassing, and it's automatic. It's automatic control by the system. For instance, go to the bank and try and draw out five hundred dollars from your the mechanical teller. You can't do it. So You've exceeded your daily withdrawal limit. That's right, and you can you can hit you can yell at that machine all you want. They'll they'll film you, by the way. You Smile, your uncandid camera. You're not going to get one <laughs> single twenty dollar bill more out of that machine That's right. until tomorrow. Period. Well, can you imagine, uh, you know, a kiosk like that 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 had to do with with any other facet of life? Imagine trying to make a plane ticket to go visit, uh, say, your sick uncle in New York City or something, you're getting ready to order your ticket, and a little screen pops up and says, um, we're sorry, but you've exceeded your carbon footprint for the month, and you're, you can't buy this ticket. You know, you have a gas-guzzling SUV, and you, you, you took too many road trips, and, um, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you live in a big house where you have a lawn, and maybe you've got a couple of steers out back, and whatever, but you, you're living a lifestyle where your carbon footprint is 50% over what we say it should be, and therefore you're not going to travel. Better luck next month. That's Th the kind of thing that's coming down at us right now. Think it, about it, that, folks, what he's saying. That is what's coming down. And then throw in the mix of that, Patrick, the biometrics and the real ID. They're going to tell you what you can do, where you can go, and you're going to do it and like it. That's really what we're looking at, Patrick. That's right. That's right. This is much worse than that's why when people say, well, this is communism, isn't it? I say, no, it's not. You don't get it. It's worse than communism. <laughs> it's at least you had a black market in communism. When these technocrats get done with us, there will be no chance for a black market. So what's the answer to all this in the waning moments, Patrick? Well, for one, for for those who are of a of a biblical nature, there's never been a better chance in the world that you should stick your nose back into your Bible and start taking it seriously and literally and get your mind back into the whole concept of Bible prophecy. Start reading the Old Testament prophets. Read the book of Revelation as well and just see what's happening on planet Earth today. These are critical sea change things that are happening. People that are, are within the Christian faith have an opportunity to straighten up and get their lives right with their with their Lord. And I, I just cannot more, more strongly suggest that if there's ever been a time to do it, folks, it's right this second, because you're going to need your faith. Those people who were killed in Oregon this last week by that murderer, 
nine people died. He asked them, he, he, he said, stand up and tell me, are you a Christian? And if they answered yes, he shot them in the head. He said, you're going to see God momentarily. And he put a bullet in their head. They fell to the ground. Those people had a decision to make on the spot whether or not they were going to deny Christ or not. And I'll tell you what, it's coming to this, folks. We see signs of it everywhere. And so now's the time for Christians to get serious about their faith. And for all those people who are political activists out there, quit carping at the national political scene and go down and clean up your own stinking communities. They're riddled with Agenda 21 and sustainable development, all this climate change thinking. They're absolutely riddled with it from top to bottom. And if you're not willing to clean up your own house, then don't complain about the national house or anybody else's house. That's all, that's about all I can say. Get your own house in order. Absolutely. You nailed it because prophecy is on fire in the world. And Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God, is the only force that can stand against a force of evil, protect us and guide us into God's kingdoms. All of the roads are dead end, folks. So you need to make sure that you're right with the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid the tab for your eternal life. Patrick, it's always so good to have you on the program. And do tell people where they can get this incredible book. And I highly recommend as soon as they hear this interview, they jump on Amazon. They do need to get this book. Where can folks get it? Well, a great place to start is to go to technocracy.news, which is a new website I started to to kind of curate news about technocracy and stuff from around the world, technocracy.news. And there's a link to get the book right there on the screen. And it's also available on amazon.com. There's a Kindle version. People are liking Kindle, by the way. I guess a lot of people like to read it on their tablets or their iPhones or whatever. But either way, I, I prefer books. I like to get it in my hand, carry it with me, mark it up, get my yellow marker out, stuff like that. But um, however you do it, the important thing is do it. Do it. Exactly. Patrick, it's always a pleasure to have you on this show. And I really appreciate your time tonight. And do come back and see us soon. Absolutely. I'd love to do it. Thank you, Patrick. Folks, that was the author of Technocracy Rising, The Trojan Horse of Globalism. Such a good book. And there is a good reason that Patrick's book is frequently ordered with my book, Green Gospel, because they're a really nice complement to each other. So please do There's a really good deal on purchasing both of them together, so do get them. They complement each other well and will give you a remarkable insight on just what is going on. Incredible information. Do shoot Patrick an email and let him know you heard him on the program today. I'm sure he'll appreciate that. Such a great guy and co-wrote the Trilaterals over Washington with the one and only Anthony C. Sutton, my personal favorite author, author of America's Secret Establishment, An Introduction to the Order of Skull and Bones. Incredible book. If you don't have that book in your library, I suggest that you get it. Folks, we have a great program tomorrow. I have the renowned constitutional lawyer Chris Ann Hall joining me tomorrow with some frightening developments. That's going to be a tremendous show. My free e-newsletter went out yesterday, so look for it in your mailbox. And if you haven't signed up for that, please do sign up for my free e-newsletter. And don't forget to add me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, sign up for my YouTube channel. Those buttons are there on my website, weekendvigilante.com. And for the new listeners, if you have not signed up for the podcast, do so by clicking on the right-hand side, that big pink button that says Podomatic. 
I am available on iTunes as well. And the Sheila Zielinski app is in the app store. So please do go check that out on any smart device. All the show archives, just a convenient click away. Thank you so much for tuning into the broadcast today. See you tomorrow. Good night and God bless.